Welcome to the March of History. I am your host, Trevor Furness. And host of Brendan Furness. And we are here today covering the life, the glorious, incredible life of Gaius Julius Caesar, episode 18 on the March of History podcast. We have a lot to talk about this week, and a lot of exciting things are going on in Caesar's life, as is per usual. But also, I'm at this point about two weeks out from heading to Spain, so a lot of exciting things happening here with the March of History as well. And for those that are just tuning in and don't know what I'm talking about, I quit my corporate banking job, and I intend to pursue the March of History podcast and related YouTube channel or whatever it is we end up creating with as much to or as much as a, of a full time uh, gig as possible. And with that in mind, I'm heading to Spain to teach English part time over in Europe in all the areas that these battles happened, that these uh, historical events took place, and it'll give me a lot more time to work on the podcast. So, probably since we're about two weeks behind, I'm thinking that. By the time you guys, the audience, hears this episode, I'll probably be over there already. So if you want to see that adventure, if you want to see some of the areas in Spain that Caesar would have governed over in Andalusia, because I'm going to be in Huelva in Andalusia in southern Spain, then follow us on the Instagram, follow the Twitter, and there should be a lot of cool content. Now, last time we left off with Julius Caesar running for the consulship, I left you on a bit of a cliffhanger, not letting you know whether he wins or not. Hopefully you didn't Google it and find any spoilers. But Caesar, when he does declare his consulship, you'll remember he sacrifices his ability to have this triumph for this victory that he had in Spain, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to run for the consulship. And when he does so, he only has a few weeks to canvas in person for this consulship because he was in Spain before that. So for any other person, this would be an issue. You're only there for a few weeks to to you know, spread the word to the people. I think about U.S. presidential elections, they spend over a year just canvassing and spreading the word. Of course, they're running for an entire country and not just a city, but still, only a few weeks is not very long. But this is Julius Caesar we're talking about, and he wins in a landslide. Only a few weeks to canvass doesn't matter to him. He's still going to crush it. The only issue for Caesar is that his ally... Remember that rich man who was uncharismatic that Caesar approached and the deal was that Caesar would provide the love of the people and the star power and this man, Lucius Lucius, or I'm sorry, the other way around, Lucius Lucius would provide the money for the campaign. Well, Caesar wins, but Lucius Lucius does not win second place. And since he does not win second place, that means that our, our very own Bibulus wins second place. And it will be kind of the junior consul to senior to uh, Caesar's senior consul. And so Lucius, he's also a not an optimate, but a part of the populare. Populare. I don't know what Lucius is. He's kind of unimportant to history. He's he's never really mentioned again. So we're, we're not going to talk about him. But Caesar just approached him and made an alliance. But the idea from Caesar's point of view was hoping that this guy would get elected and then just. Rubber, rubber stamp everything that Caesar does and not get in, in his way. Instead, he gets stuck with Bibulus, who is one of the arch optimates, who's Cato's son-in-law, I believe, in some way related by marriage to Cato. And that's the last thing Caesar wants because Bibulus also just hates Caesar personally. What this means for Caesar and his consulship is that he is saddled with a ball and chain for a partner in, in the consulship, meaning Bibulus. 
because Bibulus will, without a doubt, oppose everything Caesar tries to do, everything he tries to get done in his consulship, Bibulus is going to stand in the way of, simply because it's what Caesar wants, and he hates Caesar to no end, just like Cato does. That's a problem for Caesar. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering why Bibulus has such a grudge against Caesar, if there's any reason besides just the fact that he's an optimate from the opposing party than Caesar's party, the, the popular yeah, you'll remember from all the the previous, or the, I think it was episode eight, where we talked about Bibulus was in the same aedile ship as Caesar, and Caesar overshadowed Bibulus in everything that he did, and the people loved Caesar, and Bibulus got no credit for anything that he did because people were just so wowed by this wonderfully talented and extraordinary flamboyant and flashy person that was Caesar, so Bibulus resented him for that. Bibulus also had to share praetorship with him and, and probably a quaestorship too. So Bibulus has long been overshadowed by Caesar. And now he has to share a consulship with him too. So Bibulus has, you know, many reasons. Well, I guess reasons in, in Bibulus's mind to hate Caesar. I, I wouldn't hate somebody for being bright and flashy and brilliant. You know, I would be like, right on. That's good for you. You know, go get that success. But Bibulus is, is a hater in the mold of, of most Roman aristocrats. And so if anybody does better than him, Bibulus hates them. On top of that, he's very close to Cato. Him and Cato are like best friends or, you know, are actually related by marriage. So I'm sure a lot of Cato's hate wears off on Bibulus too. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it sounds like he's a classic hater. But, you know, at the same time, you would think, I mean, it's easy to hate on people when you're doing worse than them or they're doing better than you. But for Bibulus to have been in the same year for the Adolf ship, the, the Quaestor, or as Quaestor, Considering that Caesar, I mean, is Bibulus older than Caesar? Because if not, then he must have had, at least compared to most people, a pretty successful career to get all the way to consul on the, uh, uh, what's it called, the Cursus Sanorum? Yeah, he, he's about the same age as Caesar. So I don't know if he's exactly the same because we think that Caesar had a dispensation to run early for the consulship. I don't know why, if that was because he was a patrician or, or what the case was. I don't know if Bibulus had the same. So Bibulus was around the same age. We don't know if he's exactly the same age. But, I mean, he's an aristocrat, Bibulus. And as long as he knows the right people and pisses nobody off and stays close to the optimates, he's going to keep getting elected to positions. Like, even this consulship, he's not elected because everybody loves Bibulus and they think Bibulus is going to do great things. He's elected to try to stand in Caesar's way. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's who Bibulus is. But we, we got to move on from Bibulus because we have a lot to talk about. And I tried to fit all of Caesar's consulship into one episode and came nowhere near close. So we're going to get to whatever point we get to in the consulship. And at that point, we're going to have to pause for the day and pick up next week. And it may be two or three episodes it takes us to get through the consulship, but I think there's a lot of detail in there and, and it's worth breaking down the way we do. Now, there's a lot of maneuverings after the election is done and before the actual office begins. The election is done, I mean, sometime either in the summer or early fall of 59 or sorry, 60 BC, I think. And then leading up until Caesar's consulship in 59 BC. But between those times, there's a lot of horse jockeying, trying to get into the right positions of power. And, and the Optimates knew that they had never had a chance of beating Caesar outright. But what they had hoped to do was get Bibulus in office the way that they did. They just knew that Caesar was too much of a superstar, too loved by the people, and too talented to be denied the consulship altogether. But they got exactly what they wanted. 
And that's not enough, though. They, they got to find a way to hurt Caesar's ambitions and to curtail what he wants to do with his career. So Cato and the Optimates, they had seen what Caesar had done in Spain as a military commander. And they shudder to think about what he would do with an even greater province with more chances to wage war and more chances to win glory. And so their biggest goal at this point was to deny this to him. So Cato convinces the Senate to vote ahead of the 59 BC consulship year, that is the year that Caesar's going to be serving, that both consuls of that year will not get a province and instead will be assigned the, quote, forests and public pasture lands of Italy. Yeah, you would think that they were to, they are trying to to take away the the power of a of ruling over a province, like to do something a, a bit more subtle than or even make it like a lesser province rather than I mean I'm sure like the way you know it's framed here, the the forests and public pasture lands of Italy obviously sounds like an insult to the extent that it sounds like a joke. So you would think that they would politically do something a little more reasonable. But then then again, I mean, maybe there are a lot of issues at home that, that do need to be taken care of and and it, you know, there was some legitimacy to to changing it to ruling over Italy itself. Yeah, you're province. spot on with that because yes, it is a joke. Yes, it, it it it's supposed to be an insult and a joke. Even some of the books I read mention it as a joke on Caesar and an insult to him. So it, it's not meant, you know, it wasn't meant to be subtle. It was meant directly to stat, like poke Caesar in the eye, basically. Because Caesar's number one thing that he wants is a province. And now they've gotten him stuck with the forests and pasture lands of Italy. But also, like you said, that there is there are issues in Italy. Italy is infested with brigands and runaway slaves, meaning mainly people from the Spartacus Rebellion that are, that are still on the loose. And the Italian roads are dangerous to travel on because of that if you don't have an armed force with you. That being said, that kind of task could have been given to a much lower or should have been given to a much lower magistrate, not a consul, and certainly not somebody of of Caesar's caliber to be stuck with a job like that. That's just petty and trying to constrain Caesar in any way possible. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, I still find it fascinating that the whole way that the power structure is is built in in Rome is that you become a consul first, and then you get the privilege of ruling over some foreign land, a province, which is kind of ironic because when you're consul, you're you're ruling the empire, you're ruling Rome. Versus, and it's just kind of odd that that's a a prerequisite for ruling a province on the outskirts of Rome. I mean, I, I get it, you know, given the context that that's where an empire derives all of its wealth from the extracting value from these provinces on the outskirts. But it's just kind of ironic and, and funny to think about that the prerequisite for ruling over some province is ruling over the empire itself. Yeah, that's a good point. And I don't know if it developed that way intentionally or if it was just that Rome didn't used to have provinces. So you would just be a consul or a praetor and that was it. And then they got these extra provinces and who was worthy to rule over them and who was trustworthy enough to rule over them and, and not enrich themselves and not destroy the place with somebody who had already held the responsibility of consul or praetor and then would be given that responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure it makes sense. And, uh, you know, I mean, certainly the results were, were there and it definitely is, is tougher to rule a 
province that was just conquered, say, a decade ago. So definitely makes sense to to put the talent there. Yeah, and Cato has a strong block of optimates supporting him in this. And I want to read to you a quote about this kind of trap Cato setting by insulting Caesar this way, by making a joke of him, and by sticking him with this crappy, it's not even a province, uh, the pasture lands and woodlands of Italy. Tom Holland says in his book Rubicon, quote, Austere though he was, Cato was evidently not without a sense of humor. It was a dangerous move, of course, to make a man such as Caesar the butt of a joke. But Cato, by doing so, was priming a trap. If Caesar refused to accept the Senate's decision, then he would have to rely on force to reverse it. He would be branded a criminal, a second Catiline. Pompey's name, too, would be besmirched by association, and his program stymied for good. And this is the key part. Cato's strategy had always been to identify himself with the Constitution and corner his enemies into playing the role of wreckers. Ruthless and bold as Caesar was, how far would he dare go? And then he goes on to say in that paragraph later, quote, Perilous as the contest promised to be, Cato could feel grimly confident of victory, as he had to be, for he had chosen the use of the Republic and its very stability as his stake. And that is what I've been trying to say in previous episodes, and I don't know that I've always articulated the best, but Cato tries to force his political opponents into corners like this and tries to get them to trample over the Roman norms and their constitution and everything that they hold dear in order to paint them to be this this rules wrecker and constitution wrecker and, and somebody that doesn't respect the rights of Rome. But eventually you're going to have somebody that you put in the corner and, and doesn't actually care about any of those rules and is going to trample them all. And then you haven't strengthened them, you've weakened them. And like Tom Holland says, you're also you're gambling, and the stake that you're gambling with is the very stability of the Republic itself. That's a ridiculous wager to make on a regular basis, which Cato does. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering what is like the significance of say, so someone like Cato traps a political opponent into a corner using these these constitutional laws. I mean, in one sense. Yeah, the whole idea is that you're supposed to uphold the constitutional laws, but at the same time, like who who's right in that position? So uh, Cato is using these constitutional laws. Most people in Rome, I'm sure, would agree that they do want to uphold them, but is he using them in an irresponsible or too rigid way? That you know, if you were to go back to when the, the laws were first founded, the people who even wrote them would disagree with the the extent that they're being used, or is it good to, to be drawn back to the laws? I think that the, the laws are great if they're used correctly, but I think Cato just uses them in, in ridiculous fashions. Like try, you must be aware that trying to force somebody like Caesar to rule over the pasture lands and the forest land of Italy and make a joke out of him and insult him like that cannot possibly end well for the Republic, Right. He's not doing that for the sake of the Republic. Yeah, yeah, it's it's such a, a tough area to talk about because it's 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 again it's it's that like uh, kind of line between the ideal and and the realistic, and so it's tough to say. Well, that's the issue with Cato. He doesn't he doesn't yeah. live in the realistic. He doesn't yeah, he play in, real in politics. He lives in this ideal world where if he puts these obstructions in front of somebody who loves to break rules, like Caesar, he's going to not break any rules. 
guess what? That's a, that's a fairy tale land where you surround Caesar by rules and he doesn't break them. This man will break rules if you don't surround him with rules. This is what he does. Yeah, what I would be interested to see is someone corner Cato with the same rules or at least similar, you know, constitutional fundamental rules and see what how he reacts. And then if, you know, in that case, even him who's, you know, supposed to be the follower of the constitution, if even he cannot do it, then I would say, you know, we have to throw everything out. It's too ideal. You can't take it so literally and, and so you shouldn't try to trap people like that. Yeah, I think a, a good metaphor for as thought of now would be to think all these constitutional norms and precedents people are supposed to follow in Rome are a lot like the emperor with no clothes. They don't really need to be followed. It's only people's belief in them that makes them real, right? And Cato is the emperor with no clothes. Really, it's the Republic's the emperor, but Cato is, is you know, his attendant walking the emperor around, demanding that everybody compliment the emperor's clothes and tell him how what color it looks like and how good it is. And if you do that enough, you know, sometimes it strengthens the people's belief that the emperor does. He must have clothes on. Everybody, everybody's saying it. But then you get like somebody like Caesar comes along and just laughs and says that man has no clothes and, you know, walks right through the barriers that Cato erects around him. I don't know if that was a good metaphor or not, but that's just kind of what it reminds me of is everybody abides by these rules because they think they need to be abided by. And then when they see Caesar break all these rules, then suddenly the rest of them realize, oh my God, we never needed to follow these to begin with. All they needed was somebody to show them the way and show them how to break these rules for them to all follow him. And Cato, yeah. rather than avoiding a scenario like that, actively encourages it. Yeah, yeah, that's, it's, yeah, like by enforcing them, by over-enforcing them, by making them strict, in other words, making it more claustrophobic for uh, the other politicians, it's making them more restrictive and then therefore easier to break or more more convincing for, for politicians to try to break them since they're so binding. And then once they are broken, it's either they, they've been broken or they haven't, um, as far as what you were saying with the, the emperor's clothes, either someone says it or, or no one says it. And w- but once someone does say it, once someone does break the rules, then all of a sudden it it creates a precedent and, you know, everyone follows suit. So yeah, that's, that's exactly it. And then I'll give one more metaphor and then I'll get off the metaphor trend and we'll move on. But it's almost like Cato is surrounding these hyper ambitious people with tons of fine China. And they're usually surrounded by this fine China anyway. And that fine China represents all the rules and regulations of, of the Roman political life. But Cato is pushing these fine China closer and closer to these guys and constricting them more and more. Well, the closer you push it, yes, the more you constrict them, but also the more likely you make it that they break this fine China. And once it's broken, it's gone. And that's the thing that Cato doesn't seem to understand. I hope these metaphors make sense. We're doing, we're doing our best here. But if not, maybe we'll edit those out. We'll see what happens. But anyway, this is all the opposite of a special command for Caesar. You know, Pompey gets given these special commands over the Mediterranean and the pirates over the east. Uh, he got one in Spain. Caesar gets the opposite of special commands, specifically designed to limit his career and curb his huge ambitions. It's, it's kind of remarkable that way. And I thought about why that is. Why do they? Why are they so ready to give Pompey all these special commands? And Caesar, they won't even give him a normal command. Never mind a special one. And here's kind of what I came up with. I think the reason why is that Pompey is a clumsy politician 
despite all of his ability to organize and to lead troops in the field and to create administration apparatuses, he is still a clumsy politician when it comes to Rome. He doesn't understand how to craft legislation. He doesn't understand how the Senate works. He even has a friend write up a whole booklet for him when he was consul so that he could not make a fool of himself in, in the workings of government. Uh, he doesn't know how to get things done in Rome. In short, his abilities have limitations. And his personality, he has a need to be liked and accepted by the specifically the optimates and also the people, but he really wants to be liked by the optimates. And finally, he's not a native to Rome, which I think also works in his interest. Contrast that with Caesar. Caesar has limitless abilities in every area of his life. He's one of, if not the greatest politician Rome has ever seen. He understands the complex workings of Roman politics and the Senate like no one else in the Republic does. And he understands the complexities of legislation and how to write them better than anyone else does. And he knows how to get legislation passed. And he wants to be loved, yes, like Pompey, but he doesn't need to be like Pompey. It's, it's not a need where he's like a puppy dog that needs to be loved. Caesar's okay with people hating him as long as, as, long as it's for the right reason. And finally, Caesar is a patrician claiming descent from gods and kings with ancestry that goes back to the period of the kings of Rome. So for all those reasons, I think that they see Caesar as being more dangerous than Pompey and more likely to try to usurp king-like a power onto himself and to make himself some kind of king of Rome, whereas Pompey has a lot more limitations and seems less likely to do any of those things because of that yeah yeah i would say yeah, it definitely seems like poppy is more like a like i mean while he's immensely talented he's more like a, a tool that can be used to you know get get things done clear the pirates out of the the mediterranean conquer the east but you know with the assurance that that tool is not going to be turned on themselves yeah yeah i agree Pom- yeah exactly pompey is somebody that can be used caesar seems like somebody that's only ever going to like as much as you try to use Caesar, he's going to end up using you. He's too dangerous of a tool to try to use, so let's just put him in the shed and try to bury him <laughs> and make sure that nobody yeah. ever uses him. And it's funny, because the whole non-native to Rome thing for Pompey, usually that would work against you in Rome, but with Pompey, it almost works in his favor because people aren't afraid of him making himself into some kind of king of Rome because he doesn't have the, the bloodline to be able to do that. And I should say, this just reminded me, I meant to do this at the beginning of the episode, but I made a correction about the Julii in the previous episode and how they're an older family than the Claudii. And I think the way I worded it was they go back, their family, the Julii, goes back to the kings of Rome. I since listened to that back and realized that that wording is very confusing. And what I meant by that was that the Julii go back to the time of the kings they're not part of the family of the kings, but they go back to the time of the kings of Rome before there was a republic. But getting back to our story, I want to give you an idea of what made Caesar such a great politician in Rome. So I'm going to read you a quick quote from Anthony Everett's book, Cicero, The Life and Times of Rome's Greatest Politician. Quote, Caesar's success as a politician sprang not only from his capacity for rigorous analysis of a given situation and for decisive action, but also from his charm and attention to detail. So when softening up Pompey, he had appealed to the great man's vanity by getting the Senate to let him wear his triumphal insignia, including the special embroidered purple gown at public shows. 
Few people saw the steel behind his agreeable, good-humored manners. He knew how to make himself liked by all and sundry. He was scrupulously polite. Once, when he was served asparagus dressed with myrrh instead of olive oil, he ate it without objecting and told off his friends when they objected to the dish, because it tasted bitter and was vulgarly expensive. And Caesar says, quote, If you didn't like it, you didn't need to eat it. But if one reflects on one's host's lack of breeding, it merely shows one is ill-bred oneself, end quote. His attitude towards money was strategic. It was not so much that he wanted it for himself. He sought it as a fund into which his friends and soldiers could dip, often providing them with cheap or interest-free loans. He was always giving people presents, whether or not they asked for them. And he continues on, quote, From his youth, Caesar took a dandyish care of his appearance, once adding wrist-length sleeves to his purple-striped senatorial tunic and wearing his belt fashionably loose. His dinner parties and entertainments were legendary. In Plutarch's phrase, he was known and admired for a, quote, certain splendor in his lifestyle, end quote, within a quote. Now, so this is saying, so what was that part about the uh, the myrrh on the asparagus? So this is saying he's being served that and his, uh, say, contemporaries are complaining and he's saying, not to complain, what, because... Yeah, so the story goes that Caesar and some of his compatriots go to a party at some kind of new man's house. Somebody who's new to Rome, and they're kind okay. of nouveau rich, and they want to be like all the rich people in Rome, but they get things subtly wrong, or they do things that are, you know, the the old money would consider vulgar. And in this case, they what they put myrrh, which is a incense on the food, which is crazy expensive, but didn't even taste good. It tasted bitter. <laughs> they used that as the spice to decorate their dish rather than an actual spice you would use on food. And his compatriots, Caesar, all complain about this and start making fun of it and laugh at these people for their poor breeding. And Caesar reprimands them and snaps at them, quote, if you didn't like it, you didn't need to eat it. But if one reflects on one's host's lack of breeding, it merely shows one is ill-bred oneself. In other words, you know, if you don't want it, that's fine. You didn't have to eat it. But if you're going to sit here and talk about our host, who was nice enough to serve us foods, lack of good breeding, it merely shows that you yourself have lack of good breeding. This definitely reminds me of two episodes ago when we were talking about Caesar's time in Spain when they, they stopped by that one town or village and what was it, some of the soldiers are laughing that even in such a small town as this, they still race to be the, the first man in this town. And then Caesar also kind of scolds them for for that kind of snobbery. In this case, it's sort of like a reverse snobbery of thinking that, you know, this new family of, of uh, in Italy is kind of doing these, these kind of ludicrous or silly displays of wealth and kind of being reverse snobby to them. But anyway, but yeah, still a similar theme of, of Caesar kind of scolding his the people that he's with for you know any kind of snobbery towards some person for not doing something the way they would expect it to be done. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I call it reverse snobbery. I think I just call, oh what that you're saying that Caesar's doing. Oh, I I just mean because uh, so you're saying this is kind of like a, a new I guess a new family. So what they're on the up and up, but they are kind of doing things. They're spending a lot of money. I mean, myrrh is expensive, but. They're using it in a weird way, putting it on the food. Like, so I, I mean, these people are wealthy, they're well to do, but 
So I think it's a misunderstanding of where snobbery comes from in Roman times. Snobbery did not come from money in Roman times. It, it came from bloodlines, right? And so you could be as rich as you want, and somebody who's got the better blood than you can still look down on you as a snob or can still be snobbish towards you. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's more about class over, over yeah. wealth. And Caesar, who has the greatest bloodlines of them all, yet is extremely careful to never insult anybody and to be gracious to his hosts, which this, I mean, gives you a picture into Caesar's character where you think well, somebody who's this polite and this gracious to his hosts, even when they make full, like make, if they do things that make fools of themselves in the eyes of the rest of Rome, Caesar will still not make fun of them. And then you think about somebody like Bibulus and, and Cato that hate this man, Caesar. And you got to wonder, like they must go out of their way to hate him. If he's this kind of person, that's that gracious, right? But moving on with our story, Caesar, as much as he wants a great province, he does not want to spring Cato's trap. and He does not want to break all the rules and make himself look like this pariah with the Senate. So right now, waiting for his consulship to begin, he kind of sits back and, and bides his time. And even though Cato has cornered Caesar like this and used the Republic and its stability as his stake, he feels confident in doing this because he has this block of the Optimates and he has Crassus on his side as well because Crassus does not want to see Pompey pass this land bill just because Crassus and Pompey are notorious enemies. They hate each other. So anything Pompey does, Crassus does the opposite and vice versa. So looking from Caesar's perspective, how does he overcome such a formidable block of Crassus plus the Optimates both standing in his way? Because remember, his whole point of this consulship is to try to help Pompey pass his legislation so that he can get on Pompey's good side and have Pompey help him. This threatens his whole consulship, this, this alliance between Cato and Crassus, and nothing would be accomplished if he can't find something to do. And if nothing's accomplished, he's not getting any special command. But in a stroke of pure brilliance and audacity, Caesar soon proves their fears about his great political abilities to be 100% correct. We've already said that Caesar spots Pompey's issues and turns them into his own opportunities. Well, he has also seen that Crassus is having similar issues at this point. You see, Crassus works closely with the Pupacani tax collectors in the East. Those are the Eastern provinces that Pompey settled. Now, these tax collectors, the Pupacani, are like ancient corporations. They bid on contracts for taxes for the state. And in this case, they bid too high because they were not aware of how war-torn the eastern provinces were after, what, like 10 years of war they've been through. And so they realize pretty soon after they put this bid into the government that they would never be able to collect enough taxes from the east to be able to pay this bid. And so they won a bailout. And you can imagine that this is not a popular idea in Rome to bail out a bunch of overly greedy tax collectors that bid too high to try to fleece the people. And Crassus, being their main benefactor in Rome and being a, a top dog in Rome, is supposed to help them. Yet he can't get any legislation passed as their benefactor because I think it's mainly Cato and the Optimates that stand in their way. But just in general, it's just not a popular cause in Rome. And this makes Crassus look bad to the Pupacani because he is supposed to be their champion in Rome. And if he can't get this done, well, then maybe he's not as strong as they thought. Maybe he's not as good as they thought. Maybe they should be looking for somebody else to be their patron. 
Yeah, when I hear this, it's a, and I, I think I heard it for the first time a little while ago, but when I hear about Crassus trying to run a bill that bails out the tax collectors, that just sounds like classic Crassus. Like, who else? I mean, it, it's just funny to, to hear it in one sentence like that, that he's bailing out the tax collectors. I mean, obviously, <laughs> there's a lot more like to it than that. And the reason he's doing it is because he's he he's the one or he was already involved in the East. And you know, there's, a, there's a lot more to it. But was when he, I'm sure that's going to be a tough thing to make popular when you can sum it up like that, that ta- Crassus wants to bail out the tax collectors. It's going to be tough yeah. to... To get a lot of you know excitement about that, you know the rich guy in Rome wants to to bail out the people that, that take money from you. Yeah, he wants the taxpayers to bail out the tax collectors. And the only yeah. reason that they need to bail out the ta- tax collectors is because they got overly greedy and bid too high. Because the way it works is it's like any government contract; they place a bid. Oh, we can do it for this price, or we can do it for that price. Except in this case, they are saying that they can collect X amount of taxes in the provinces. Oh, we can collect 20 towns. Oh, we can collect 50 towns. And these guys maybe came in and said, oh, we can collect 100 towns. I'm just making numbers up. And so the Senate and the Treasury is going to take whoever the highest bidder is. And then these Pupacani got in there and saw, oh, my God, we bid 100 and we can only collect 50 from these provinces. Not only can we not make money from this, we're going to lose money. And so Crassus is trying to bail them out, which is not popular. But Caesar sees this as an opportunity because both him and Pompey are being stymied by these optimists now. And Caesar offers to solve both their problems during his year as consul. But he tells them that they will need to set aside their differences and reconcile with each other if this is going to happen. And you got to wonder, how did Cato not see this coming if he's going to sit there and stymie everything that Pompey wants and everything that Crassus wants and didn't see the idea that maybe they would team up with each other to overcome his optimate block. And the reason why it's, it's not so blind as you think from Cato's perspective, Crassus and Pompey are like oil and water in Rome. It's even one of the fundamental laws of Roman politics during this time is that whatever side Pompey is on, Crassus will be on the opposite side and vice versa. These guys hate each other's guts going back to their earliest interactions as part of Sulla's army. And it takes all of Caesar's charisma and charm and oratory and intelligence, but he convinces them to set aside their differences and work together. And the wildest thing about all this is is not that he took these two enemies and convinced them to work together and get over the differences, but it's the fact that he slept with both of their wives and he still managed to convince them of this. <laughs> yeah, I, I still find that like I feel like there there must be something, unless it's just purely his charisma. Like maybe, I mean, maybe they're just they're not arranged, but uh, political marriages or something, and it was just that's why Crass and Poppy didn't care or. Or maybe they have enough like women in these foreign provinces that they don't even you know see it as that big of a deal. Well, it, it certainly were political marriages, but Pompey also seemed to feel embarrassed enough about his wife cheating on him to divorce her when he got back to Rome. So I, I would say it does matter to them, but they seem to look past it, whether it's because they see Caesar as such a useful ally or, or who knows what it is. Maybe it's his charisma and charm and he's just a tough guy for them to be mad at. <laughs> Who knows? Cato certainly seems to find a way to be mad at him. Yeah, I'm trying to like picture what happens. It's just like uh, 
Caesar cracks a joke or something that they just forget about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, Crassus and Poppy come in, they're furious. And then Caesar just cracks a, a funny joke. And then, and then, uh, you know, it all just, uh, soon wash, all, washes away, wine together. Yeah. Slap each other on the back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can imagine it, you know, suddenly there's something and pretty soon they're having breaking bread and drinking wine with each other. But these guys have been enemies since the beginning of their political careers. And it's kind of kept the Republican balance, them always being on opposite sides, because they're the two biggest dogs in Rome right now. Caesar's much below these guys in power and prestige and in money and resources. But Caesar realized that if he didn't reconcile these two with each other and he got one of them or the other on his side, then it would always be the opposite so you say he gets Crassus on his side. Pompey's going to oppose him simply because Crassus is supporting him. If he gets Pompey on his side, Crassus will oppose him simply because Pompey is supporting him. So he knew he'd have to get both of them on his side and to reconcile with each other. Otherwise, nothing was going to happen. One thing that I'm wondering about is, I wonder if it was a situation where, like, a classic uh, situation where, like, like, two people have been arguing and, and bitter about each other for so long and you know, maybe both of them are kind of tired of it and they want to get out of it, but don't want to be the first one to make the move to show the vulnerability to back down. But they want to be done with it. They don't care so much anymore about, you know, continuing this this bitter rivalry for no reason. And so maybe they just needed someone else to come in and make that first move for them. I mean, just speculation, but, you know, you see that kind of, that kind of thing happen today. And it wouldn't be a surprise that the pettiness of just always voting the opposite way like that just sounds very familiar. Yeah, I think it could be, but I think that that would be more familiar from a modern listener's ears. But these ancient Romans saw nothing wrong with having rivalries and going out of your way to be petty to people. They thought that was no big deal. And I think it was more that less that they wanted to end the beef and didn't want that negativity in their life and more that they still hated each other, but saw this great opportunity to work together and get whatever they want passed. And that made them overlook their hatred of each other. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. It could have been yeah, ambition that just over overrode the, you know, any other kind of resistance between them. Yeah. I think Caesar painted a picture for them of a world in which with the three of them combined, they could get whatever they want done. And that was enough for them to overcome their hatred of each other. But it would take a person that could paint that picture well enough and could make them believe in that picture and believe in that future and believe that it could be a reality to convince them of this. Because you got to think of a, of a lesser person or somebody without as much charisma tries to convince them of this, they would laugh them out of the room or say, get out of here. We're not interested. So it takes somebody with a lot of skill to do what Caesar does. Yeah, I certainly, I certainly can't see Bibulus uh, having the charisma to, to join them two together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially since in this alliance, Caesar is the most junior of the three. So you have to come and approach these two top dogs in Rome. You being, yes, you just got elected consul, so that, and you got elected by landslides. So that bolsters your status with them, but you're still not on their level. So just calling them both to a meeting with each other and getting them to actually show up would be tough enough. And, you know, having them listen to you and hear you out and believe what you're saying. And you're kind of essentially leading them into this alliance, even though you're the most junior member, takes a lot of confidence. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, when Caesar invited them, did he just invite one and then invite the other and didn't tell the other that the other was coming? <laughs> and they both show up and they're, oh man, this guy's here. 
And then yeah. they're just like, all right, I guess I'll stay and I'm already here. <laughs> yeah, it could have happened like that. But Caesar tells them that with all three of them on the same side, they can pass whatever bill that they want. Crassus's tax collector bill, a bailout can be passed. They can ratify Pompey's decisions in the East. Because remember, the things that Pompey wants done is he wants all of his decisions for the administration and the settlement of the Eastern provinces to be ratified in one stroke. And he wants to give land to his veterans. And so Caesar says they can accomplish all of that. And let's not forget, it was Cato and the Optimates stonewalling both Pompey and Crassus' legislation that gave this opportunity to Caesar. Now, that's not to say that they gave it to him on a silver platter. Caesar had to be extremely creative to think this was even possible. I think most politicians would have seen this as a pipe dream and never even tried. Caesar went out and did it, but it was only Cato and the Optimates blocking everything that made this possible. Now, Caesar also approaches Cicero to uh, join him in this alliance. Cicero thinks about it for a while, but refuses. But we'll, we'll come back to that later. But what does Caesar get out of all this? Because this is an enormous amount of hard work and an enormous amount of planning and hard thinking he's going to have to do to get this legislation passed, because even with all their power on his side, it's still not going to be easy. Caesar wants a magnificent command. He didn't give up a triumph to watch over the woods and pasture lands of Italy, that's for sure. He wants one, not one, but two provinces, and he wants them for not one, but five years. And so they all agree to this, and this pact becomes known to history as the first triumvirate. You know, considering, I mean, do we know when people found out that there was even a triumvirate? Because I'm wondering, like, if it wasn't until centuries or whatever, de- even decades, anytime afterward, I mean, there could be a triumvirate going on today that we don't even, and I mean, in, in modern times, and I mean, here in the U.S. Or, or someplace else that you wouldn't even know about. And you just see, you know, this legislation, whatever, is passed. And there could be something like that, some kind of uh, power block that we don't even know about. That's true. I mean, it, it doesn't take them long in the Roman world to figure this out. But for okay. a while, for a number of months anyway, the general population of Rome and even the elite are entirely unaware of this alliance. And that goes to what you're saying, Brennan, that there could be an alliance like that today. And it doesn't make it to the history books until later. You know, people aren't aware of it at first when it happens. But we have a lot to talk about, so we're going to move on. Their only condition in this triumvirate is an agreement that none of the three of them does anything or tries to pass anything that the other or any of the other two would find offensive. So essentially, if any of them says, I don't like that, then they're not going to do it. They're also going to oppose anything together that any of them disapprove of. But like I said, this is not an open agreement. It's kept secret from the rest of Rome. Supposedly, they even take a secret oath, according to Cassius Dio, though this could be a later invention because the Romans always found secret oaths to be nefarious by nature and scary things. So it may have just been uh, propaganda against the first triumvirate later. But 59 BC rolls around and Caesar takes office. And the two consuls, Bibulus and Caesar, are equal in power, but Caesar is what you might call the senior consul, which I don't is probably not a good way to put it because he didn't have any more power than Bibulus, but he got the most votes, which means that he takes precedent the first month. And the consuls would alternate with each other with the consul who got the most votes taking precedent in January, the consul who got the second most votes taking precedent in February, and whoever had precedent. They would call it holding the fasces, 
would call the, the Senate to meetings that month and would take charge and would run the meetings and would try to pass bills, et cetera, et cetera. Since Caesar won the most votes, obviously he holds the fasces or he holds precedent in January. And Caesar immediately offers a sort of olive branch to Bibulus and the Optimates. Normally you have 12 lictors or 12 bodyguards that hold the fasces, walk in front of the consul in a line, clearing people out of the way and kind of you know pushing all the great unwashed out of the way for the great consul to, to go through. Caesar says on months when Bibulus holds the fasces, he will have his lictors walk behind him instead to just symbolically show that Bibulus is in charge. And this was an old-fashioned thing that the Romans used to do that had fallen out of fashion. And Caesar, it's a great way to appeal to the optimates, to reach back to something from Rome's past and bring it back into vogue and to do something that shows, hey, Bibulus, I respect you, and in your month, you're going to be in charge. So I'm, I'm trying to picture this. So usually it's 12 lictors are in front of you, and then you're the consuls directly behind them. And then what in this case... He's saying that he would walk in front of the lictors and the lictors, uh, Caesar would walk in front of the lictors and the lictors would be behind him. Yeah, because the lictors would walk in front of you and they'd shove everybody out of the way. The consul's coming through and they would push all the peasants out of the way. Okay. And so it would let everyone know the consul's coming and you get around places quicker. Caesar said, I'll have them follow me so that it's not like that. I'm not exerting as much power. And I'll just have like some scribe, some, some kind of uh, servant would walk in front of him and that's it. Okay. Now, another thing that Caesar does is he implements a policy where all speeches in the Senate and in public meetings would be recorded by a scribe and posted in the forum for all the people of Rome to see. And the reason for it is that Caesar wanted all of Rome to be crystal clear as to everything that's about to happen in this consulship. And he does not want any of that nonsense where Catullus, who's now dead now, but you'll remember he was the arch optimate. We kind of skipped over his death because... It just we we got to cut things out. But Catullus, the archaeotimate during the Catalan conspiracy, had just gone around telling everybody that, yeah, I saw the list in this in the Senate meeting, and Caesar's name was on it, and he's one of the conspirators. A blatant lie, and that pissed off a lot of people or pissed them off towards Caesar. And so Caesar wanted none of that kind of making crap up about what was happening. He wanted everyone in Rome to know the truth. And he didn't want the people, the general masses, to be kept in the dark. He wanted them to be informed on what was taking place. This is something that I, that I myself would fundamentally agree with. I mean, anytime, I mean, unless you're, unless you're doing something like, you know, some top secret military uh, plan or scheme or whatever. I mean, transparency in government or a company or anything is always, always for the best, it seems, versus keeping things behind closed doors. Yeah, I agree. And from his perspective, he's about to do a lot of things for the people, and he wants them to know what exactly he's trying to accomplish that's in their interest, and he wants them to see how reasonable he is being in his handling with the optimates and how he guesses unreasonable they're going to behave. And it's hard to imagine why this wasn't implemented before Caesar, but it was only done on special occasions before him. But I believe after Caesar, it's all the Senate meetings are always recorded from then on. So January 1st comes, and that's Caesar's very first day in office. So he does the decree that everything's going to be written down. And then immediately on his first day in office, Caesar proposes a complex land redistribution bill. And 
In this case, it would be taking publicly owned land and giving it to veterans and poor Roman citizens with X number of kids to turn them into productive farming citizens that can serve in the army later and can produce food for the country or for the uh, Roman people rather than living in poverty off the grain dole at the government's expense. But land redistribution bills in Rome are the third rail of Roman politics. They're almost impossible to get passed. Land bills tended to get the aristocracy agitated and even violent, and trying to pass a land bill in Rome that everyone agreed on was near impossible. I would even go as far as to say impossible. Yeah, I'm thinking like, and we've discussed this in previous episodes, how the definition, or not the definition, but one of the defining characteristics of the elites, the nobles in Rome, it seems, are to be landowning and to not be, for that to be your, your core source of, of wealth and, and prestige, or not, not necessarily prestige, but at least as far as material things, uh, the core kind of um, characteristic of, of noble wealth rather than, than business or uh, other such ventures. Yeah, yeah. So, and you can see why then that the aristocracy jealously guards land and, and land rights. And a lot of bills on land redistribution have been tried to be passed in, in the past few years, including some by Pompey. And Caesar has studied these bills and he's learned from their mistakes and he has implemented changes into his land bill that he believes take those into account. So, what Caesar does, I'm going to give you some of the details of the bill because this bill is incredible that Caesar creates all of this and is so well-reasoned, so well-thought-out, and so well-planned that I think it's worth explaining all the details to you guys. So, one, Caesar exempts some of the best land from Campania that the Treasury made a great revenue from, from the bill. So they're going to take all this public land and redistribute it to a bunch of different citizens. Campania is where the Treasury gets a lot of its money from, and had held up previous bills because this, the Treasury and the Senators did not want to give up that land. So Caesar just said, hey, it's exempted. Nobody's going to touch that land. We're leaving it where it is. So already he's learning from previous bills, and he's nipping that one in the bud. Caesar also includes a clause that private property would be respected. There would be no imminent domain, not seizing anybody's assets. They're only going to buy from willing sellers. So some of the land that the government already owns, some of it they will buy from private citizens, but they're not going to just take anybody's land. Next, a commission would be established to oversee the, the redistribution. And this is to prevent any one person from gaining too much power and committing some shady land deals, aka stealing, and just profiting from all of this going on. And this commission would not have a few people that could rule in a, in a little click, but would have 20 or so people so that a few did not dominate. So another thing that would appeal to these optimates and, and to the senators, they don't want to see one person or a few people get too much power. And this commission would also be elected. It would not be appointed by Caesar. It would be elected. So everyone would have a say in it. Very fair. And Caesar specifically bans himself from being eligible as a commissioner because he don't want anyone to say that, th that he is passing this bill to benefit himself, that he's trying to enrich himself, or that he has anything to benefit here. He wants this exclusively to be for the people of Rome, so he bans himself from being a commissioner because he knew that people, probably the optimates, would say that he was just doing this for himself. 
and the land would be redistributed to Pompey's veterans and poor citizens with three children or more. And Appian says that there's nearly 20,000 men with three or more children who would be settled by, just, and that's just the, the poor citizens of Rome. So 20,000 men plus their families of presumably four or, or more, plus Pompey's veterans. So this is a lot of people being resettled. Yeah, to me, this seems like a no-brainer as far as, I mean, the reason Rome exists is because it had a good military, and you, you can't have a good military if you don't have healthy people, a growing population to, to field the legions. So, I mean, it, it seems to me that it just, if one person has a bunch more land or a group of people, say, you know, in this case, the nobles, the, sorry, the nobles had a lot more land, that will do nothing to increase the power of the and the, the numbers of the legions. But if you have lots of people fill that land up and their population grows, then that will help the state, the uh, the empire. Yeah, yeah. And just kind of moving on with some of the the more items the land bill had. Just I'm listing out all the fair and reasonable things that he included in here. Another one is that commissioners had to pay fair prices for the land that they buy from private citizens according to the latest census. So he's nipping that one in the bud of commissioners forcing people to sell at knockdown prices. And the funding for all all these land purchases from private citizens, where does it come from? Well, it's going to come from the vast wealth that Pompey had sent back to the treasury from the east. And by doing this, the wealth which was fought for by the veterans for the sake of Rome would go to benefit these very same veterans, Pompey's legions. And because Pompey sent so much money to the treasury, this is not going to bankrupt the state. This is a great way for the state to actually redistribute all these funds they just have, or, or not to redistribute, but to invest all these funds that they just got into their people to create productive farmers and productive citizens and future soldiers. Caesar also adds a clause saying that all current land holdings would be legally recognized. And this is to prevent people from fearing the commission would start to dig into how they had acquired the land and whether they had it legally and if it was illegal, take it from them. Because a lot of senators probably have some shady land deals. So he just says they're not going to look into anything. They're just going to say, you know, if you own land, it's yours. And then finally, the new farmers had to hold this land for 20 years at least. And this prevented the rich from gobbling up the land again from the poor and the poor getting bamboozled by you know, rich estate owners. And it also sets up stable communities that are permanent around Italy. Now, this whole bill was exceptionally well thought out. It was a reasonable bill and it would benefit veterans. It would benefit the urban poor. And by doing so, it would benefit all of Rome. And at this point, Rome's population is bursting at the seams. There are so many destitute and unemployed people in Rome living off the grain dole that there's frequent riots in the cities or in, in the city of Rome, according to primary sources. So they have so many poor people that have no jobs and are living off the grain dole that they have frequent riots. So this is going to help everybody. Instead, these people would be put to use as productive working citizens, working the land of Italy and producing food and supporting themselves and others. And much of the land around Italy is desolate right now and nobody is working it. So this would get a lot of that land put into use. Now, from the aristocrats' perspective, they would get a smaller price tag on the grain dole, which is the grain they feed to the poor urban masses each day because there's going to be less urban poor. 
Instead, these people will be working and feeding themselves and providing additional food. So that looks good to them and looks good to the treasury. And veterans will not be sitting around in taverns, unemployed, dreaming up plots to overthrow the government that left them destitute. Instead, they will be put to productive use. In all of this, Caesar has really just bent over backwards to not step on the optimates and the rest of the aristocrats' toes. And now Caesar goes through this bill in the Senate and reads it out to the Senate line by line. And he tells them that if there's anything that they find objectionable, he would either alter it or remove it. So I don't know how much more reasonable and considerate of people's views you can be than what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely, I mean, from my perspective, like I was saying before, it definitely seems like a good thing to do. I wonder what the the arguments against it were. I mean, I mean, I don't know. It's, I guess I shouldn't be so surprised, but it's the same thing today. The Democrats say one thing and then Republicans say the other. So it's, I guess it's nothing, uh, that's nothing new. It's, it's just the same thing. But Well, you would think, but this is where it gets interesting, right? Because the next day, January 2nd, or we, we think it's the next day, January 2nd, Caesar holds another meeting of the Senate. And he calls on all the senators of note, person by person, and asks them what their opinion of the bill is and if they have any objections. So again, being very fair, hearing out everybody's opinions. And of course, Pompey gets up and he supports it. Crassus gets up and he supports it, which probably surprised quite a few people to see both of those guys on the same side. That's the first time that they've seen this. Everybody expected Pompey to be, but Crassus, that must have been a surprise. And Caesar goes to the rest of the ex-consuls, the praetors, the ex-praetors, etc., etc. And no one can find anything bad to say about this bill. That's how well-written it is. And for a land bill, that's unbelievable. It's, there's always everybody, everybody up in arms about these things. But Caesar wrote it so well that nobody had a bad word to say about this bill. And the optimates don't like the bill as being... I mean, they don't like the bill simply because it's being proposed by Caesar, but they can't think of anything to criticize the bill for or reject the bill because it's just it's so well thought out. So even though they, they hate the fact that Caesar has proposed this, they hate the fact that he's come up with such a well-reasoned bill, it's too well thought out for them to criticize it. And so they don't criticize the bill, but they don't offer any support either. Instead, they keep promising him that they, they would pass the bill, but in the meeting, they're just doing nothing. They're just kind of sitting around and kind of, you know, trying to waste time. And the other thing that should be considered is that Caesar had the genius move of having all of these proceedings recorded. And so a lot of these optimates, even though they hate the bill, and in previous sessions of the Senate, they probably would have made up some petty excuse as to why they don't like the bill. They all know that the people of Rome will be seeing a transcript of this meeting and they do not want to be on record as the person who said some ridiculous excuse for why this bill, which was so obviously helped the people, couldn't be passed. That makes me curious. I, you know, was it was it that, that you know there were really no mistakes in this bill? I mean, I'm sure it's very well written and had all its bases covered. But at the same time, since this is the start of posting those the meeting notes on the in the forum. Was it also because of that, for that reason, not just that the bill covered all its bases, but for that reason that the optimists didn't have anything concrete to say against it? I don't think so, because I think if they had something concrete, they would have said it. But the thing was say something maybe not concrete, but, you know, any, you know, something petty or whatever, something to block it. 
Well, yeah, but that's the, that's the issue. They, they only had petty things to say. And when they're being recorded and the light of history is being shown on the Senate meeting, suddenly they don't want to say these petty things. So they'll keep their right, mouths yeah. shut. Yeah. Yeah. So Caesar keeps going down the round and, and asking person after person. It's the same way until Caesar gets to ex tribunes. And that's when it's Cato's turn to speak. Now, I think we all know where we think that this is going. But remarkably, even Cato, even stubborn old disagreeable Cato, can't find a bad word to say about this bill, which just blows my mind. Even Cato can't find something wrong with this bill. That's how well written it is. But in typical Cato fashion, he doesn't let that stop him, how well thought out and good for Rome that this bill would be. Cato says that he thinks that this is a bad time for a bill causing so much change and doesn't think it's a good year for it. What's more, he declares that he's just against innovation in general and advises abiding by the current system. And then he keeps talking and talking and talking. Cato is filibustering the land bill. Infuriating. This is a clear obstruction of democracy and of the will of the people. This is something that's going to help the people. This is something that no senator is opposing. And Cato is just filibustering. Which the act of filibustering in my mind is almost an autocratic move because you're not asking anybody else if they agree with you. You're not convincing anybody. You're not, you're not letting democracy work. You're taking power into your own hands and you're single-handedly saying this bill will not pass regardless of what the people want. And this filibustering is blocking the people from improving their lives dramatically. And the only reason it's being done is because Cato does not like Caesar and does not want Caesar to get power. Cato believes... He even says that Cato, I think, later says that he's not against the bill per se. He's just against the support of the people and the power that Caesar would win by passing such a bill. It's astoundingly petty when you're just blocking something that would help the lives of so many Roman citizens and would therefore help the Republic itself simply because you don't want to see Caesar gain any power by this. But this is extremely problematic for Caesar. And... The reason why is the bill has to be published 24 days before the tribal assembly meets to vote on it. So basically the Senate would vote on it, and it's not law yet until it goes to the tribal assemblies where the people vote on it. But the Senate has to vote and it has to be published for 24 days before this final vote. And the reason why this is a problem is the Senate could not meet all days of the month. Certain days were holidays, and the Senate wasn't allowed to meet on those days. So the bill had to be published ASAP in order for the vote to be taken while Caesar still had the fasces. Because if the vote was taken in February, it would be Bibulus who would be in charge, and then there's no shot it's passing then. So Caesar has one of his rare outbursts of temper, and for good reason. Mikado's just filibustering this well-thought-out bill that nobody could find an issue with, and he orders Cato to be arrested and sent to prison. And Cato is arrested and sent to prison, and presumably, Caesar, you know, not only was he angry at Cato, but just didn't know another way to stop him. I mean, how else do you stop a guy from filibustering? This is a big mistake, though, because Cato plays up being the victim of the tyrannical Caesar to perfection, and much of the Senate sympathizes with him, and some of the senators even leave the Senate meeting and go with Cato to prison. But the debate generally continues until one 30-year military grizzled veteran gets up and starts to walk out of the Senate meeting mid-debate. And Caesar demands to know where this man is going. The debate's not finished. And the man replies to Caesar, he'd rather be with Cato in prison. 
than in the Senate with Caesar. Yeah, yeah, it's a great line. So Cato is literally in jail right now. So how does that work? So Caesar just tossed him in. I mean, how does he have the power to even do that? He's got lictors, so he's got bodyguards that probably carried him out. Okay, so they carried him out. So this is this is like one session in the in the Senate, and they just carried him out. Yeah, and Cato okay. was happy to go. I mean, this guy loves being. He yeah, loves he wanted to be a martyr for. Yeah, he wanted to be a martyr for the cause. And Caesar apparently, they were saying uh, in one of the books I was reading, was hoping that he would appeal to one of the tribunes to release him and get out of jail that way. But Cato was too politically intelligent to do that and was happy to sit there in jail because the longer he sat there in, the, in jail, the worse it looked for Caesar. So Caesar, after this veteran says that to him, he realizes how much mistake this was and he releases Cato from prison and uh, does a strategic retreat. So it looks like they went head-to-head, Cato and Caesar, the unstoppable force in the immovable object, and Caesar blinked, and Cato, the immovable object, wins. But that's just on the surface, because this is only a strategic retreat. And you know, a lesser politician, somebody with less drive, would have given up at this point. Caesar's just getting started. He's not giving up. So he ends the Senate meeting, but no vote has been taken on the bill. And that's an issue for Caesar because if there's no votes taken on the bill, then how can he publish it 24 days before the final vote? It seems like this is almost the, the system where the, the fascists alternate to every month. It seems built to cause a, a stifling environment as far as passing laws. I mean, how can you even get anything done? I mean, why not do it like six months on, six months off, or you know, six months on for one guy, then six months for the other guy. It seems by the end of the month, I mean, or in 30 days, it'd be tough to pass anything. So it almost seems like it's it's designed to create conflict uh, from each. In this case, since they're Bibulus and Caesar are mostly against each other, designed to create conflict between the two parties. Yeah, well, they felt the conflict was good because conflict meant that there wasn't one autocrat ruling over everybody. Yeah, another way kept the Republic power. bounced. And having one person in control for six months, only a dictator was in control for six months by themselves. So that was unthinkable to the Romans. You had to have them alternating like this. But yeah, no, it is interesting. I think that part of it was to stifle innovation, but they also wanted to force these two guys, these two consuls, to find compromise and agree with each other. The issue was, I think that Caesar would have found common ground to compromise on. But the Optimates weren't looking to compromise about anything. They didn't say, hey, here's what issues we have with the bill. If you correct those, we'll pass it. And Caesar even offered to do that. They just filibustered. I mean, how do you comp- how, what compromise do you come to somebody when they're filibustering with you? Like, they're not asking for anything. <laughs> they're just saying you're not going to pass your bill. So you, you can't compromise with those people. And so the next day, Caesar then decides to skip the Senate altogether and go right to the people with his bill. And according to Cassius Dio, Caesar tells the Senate, quote, I have made you judges and masters of this new law, so that if anything did not suit you, it should not be brought before the people. But since you are not willing to pass a preliminary decree, they shall decide for themselves, end quote, meaning the people will decide for themselves since I put this in front of you and you refuse to vote on it and give your input on it, the people will decide for themselves. And that's where we're going to end the March of History for today and pick up next week where Caesar continues to try to pass this land bill and bypasses the Senate, which has led other prominent senators in the past in Roman history to their deaths at the hands of Optimates. 
But before we end, let me just say, please, if you're listening on Apple or an Apple device, go ahead and, and we would love it if you would give the podcast a rating on the Apple store. We love ratings at the five-star variety and, and leave a little summary of what you liked about the podcast. Our Instagram is at the March of History and Twitter is at March underscore history. And email, if you want to send us an email with what you think of the podcast, is themarchofhistory at gmail.com. You can follow us on, on all the, the social media platforms I mentioned. Uh, sh- leave comments on the pictures. DM us. We would love feedback. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast. It helps to grow the podcast on, on whatever platform you're on and share with friends and family interested. Until next time on The March of History.